iTunes presents Meet the Filmmaker at the Apple Store. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Tariq Saleh and this evening's guest moderator, Eric Cohn from IndieWire. Hi, how are you? So one of the things that I always look for when I watch a movie is, is someone can tell a story in a way that I've never seen before. And I can't think of a better example than this movie here where you've created a look that really has never existed in film before because of what you did in the production process, which you, you just described to me as using a software the wrong way. So maybe you could elaborate a little bit on that, on, on how you created uh, this, this very unique appearance. Yeah, well, uh, you know... Uh my background is that my father is a stop-motion animator, and uh, I grew up in an animation studio. And uh, basically, after high school, I went and worked in his studio. And, uh, my, you know, I don't know how much you know about stop-motion animation, but, like, it's basically the extreme sport of animation. It's the worst, like, most tedious way of doing film, you know, that exists. And um, he had this vision that he was going to do a puppet that could act, like a real actor, you know. And in order to do that, you have to create, like, hundreds of faces with different expressions so that you can change the faces so it appears like it's acting. Um, and um, I was the slave who molded all the 350 faces uh, and he was the one who did the creative work with doing the different expressions, you know. And after a year, because it took a year to do, do those 300 faces, and if you imagine this floor filled with faces this small, you know, one day he comes in and he just looks at those faces and he looks at me and says, you know what, son, I think we can do this with 30 faces. And I was like you know, fuck you, <laughs> fuck those faces, and fuck animation. You know, this is insane. I'm not, you know, and I made a promise to myself never to work in animation. You um, know how that worked out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, the thing was that I started to work in, uh, in documentary filmmaking instead. I did two feature documentaries. But at night... Uh, almost like a subconscious act. I started to do short animated films uh, on, on um, my then G3 Apple computer, which really, I have to say, I hate that computer. It, it was so slow, it, it, you couldn't like, get anything out of it. But anyway, I, I was doing the first like, minute-long animated films, and um, we're starting to develop this style and the, the animation, because I couldn't call my dad and ask him for advice on how to actually animate. So I, I was like, uh, the animation was very primitive at that point. And uh, then uh, a young, young animator came to me as an intern who uh, really quickly, I, I found out that he's a real genius. He's... he's uh, I mean, a lot of people, you know, you throw it around like, oh, he's a genius, she's a genius, you know. But he's really, really a genius with all its, you know, all its dark sides too, you know, that you can, he can get stuck on a problem and, you know, things like that. But he, he basically, I, I gave him, I, I said, you know, can you make these characters come alive? Because it's very difficult. I mean, there is a good reason. 
There is a good reason why all the big animated films are not about human beings. I can tell you that. I mean, if Pixar have problem animating people, I mean, there is a big problem. I can tell you that. And one of the things is that we are so sensitive to how human beings look, how we read the human face, so that we get disturbed right away if, it's, if it looks uh, different. And, I mean, Metropia is a highly disturbing film. I'm not saying that I've succeeded for the first time to do uh, nice human beings, but in a way, I, I, we, we put a lot of emphasis on the eyes of these characters because I think that that's where it basically happens. A lot of, a lot of animation dies here um, because there is no soul. You can tell that the characters are dead somehow. Well, and that's part of, part of the movie is there's this voyeuristic element, the feeling that these characters are always being watched. He has a voice in his head and he doesn't know where it's coming from and all that. So, you know, on a certain level, it seems like visually the film reflects that kind of claustrophobia. So can you talk a little bit about when you're, when you're making a movie like this, I mean, how do you come up with that visual scheme, not just in the characters, but the environments that they exist in? Yeah, I'm a very paranoid person, first of all. I am... I, um I was, I was in a relationship for seven years and it came just out of that relationship when I started to do this film and started to imagine a lot of things. Uh, and I think I'm, I'm a less paranoid person now after doing the film. I, I, I mean, it was some sort of therapy to do it and to realize that, you know, they're not, they're not watching over you all the time, you know. Uh, but basically, a lot of the thoughts or ideas that's in the film are things that I've actually felt was going on. And, uh, and one feeling that I have with, with, especially with the internet and things like that, and I love the internet, I'm a, I'm a big junkie, I'm always on the internet, but there is a feeling that we are participating in a big uh, sort of voyeuristic surveillance experiment. Um, that is kind of scary in a way because, you know, um, when you talk about, for example, the Industrial Revolution, a lot of people think that the big revolution with the, in, you know, was that people were working all of a sudden in factories. But that's not what the Industrial Revolution was about. The Industrial Revolution was a thought revolution. It, it changed people's minds forever. And the most crucial point was the way we perceive time. You know, before, before the Industrial Revolution, you know, we're thinking in like, you know, seasons and things like that. When the Industrial Revolution came, we start to think about hours, minutes, seconds. And you know, that's why we're so stressed out these days. We think in seconds. You know, it's a human, you know, it's a human, uh, um, like, we, we came up with that concept. With the new digital revolution that's happening now, we're again changing the human mind and the way we're thinking about things in a very fundamental way. And one of the things is the way we look at privacy. Before, you know, everything that you didn't do in public was private. Today, 
privacy is a setting. You choose what's what's private. Everything else is in public, you know. Who's your friends? What's your interest? What are you doing right this minute? You know, probably someone is twittering right now about what's going on here, you know. It's 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 um <clears throat> it's a it's a revolution of the mind, not of technology and not of industry. In the industry, and Metropia is about that revolution, basically about how people are choosing to look into the privacy of others. Well, and you know that's interesting because you know it's not easy to get any movie made these days. But to get a movie made about a revolution of the mind sounds like an almost impossible task. So, can you tell us about how you found the resources to make a feature-length animated film like this? Yeah, uh, well, it was very difficult. It took three years to finance this film, and um, I had to use all kinds of methods. Hypnosis was one of them. I, I was basically talking to the financiers and, you know, trying to sort of make them believe that this was something else than it than it was. Uh, you know. I think that some of the financiers probably thought this was going to be like Avatar or something, you know. But um, I think that as a filmmaker, you are dealing with hypnosis constantly. Even the film itself is hypnosis. You're trying to sort of create uh, a world that you can enter into. And then as the credits roll, you wake up from that nightmare or dream or whatever you how, however you perceive the film uh, so but it was very difficult and um, um, but at the same time I must say that with this technology uh, with the digital revolution it is also possible I decided at one point I'm going to do this film it's just a matter of how it's going to be done you know is it going to be done guerrilla style and that would have been really really ugly if if we would have gone into the sort of cellar and sit with uh, like three people doing this film, I mean, I wouldn't have been sitting here. I mean, I would be still be doing the film and probably, you know, in you look 30 like the years from in now. Your movie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the things that I really tried to do with this film was because normally in animation, you, you, you know, the, the characters act with their arms and legs more than with their faces. And this is because they're going to dub the characters later to different languages. So they can't sort of do it too, too detailed in their faces. And it's also, I mean, yeah, I mean, if it's, if it's a, a rabbit or a fish, we don't have to be as, you know, the, maybe that's, it, it's not so important with the subtext of, of a scene. But, but here, what I like is that I sort of like the idea that they you can almost see what they're thinking. And I like that idea. That you can actually sort of almost feel when someone is being insincere, for example. And uh, one of the things is that there are over 30 layers controlling only the eyes, you know, and the muscles around the eyes, uh, which was kind of insane because <laughs> I, I at one point realized it's cheaper for me to blow up a building in this film than to actually have them, you know, talk to each other. Uh, and it's, uh, 
it was it was insane when I realized that it was. Yeah. Another thing I noticed when I was watching it is that the the characters' lips only slightly move. I mean, it's it's almost like they're perpetually whispering, and I and I can only imagine what it's like to explain that to to actors in a booth, you know, who have to create those voices. And tell us about the cast a little bit and and how you worked with them. I was extremely lucky when it came to the cast. I knew already from the beginning I wanted real actors and actresses because I love voice acting too. I li- I like the you know the Simpsons cast and stuff. But what what I mean it's it's a whole culture where you basically you know it's like oh my god Marge I'm gonna go, you know and it's like you know it's funny voices. It's not it's it's with real acting it comes from inside. I mean it's not something you do with your voice and. So I I actually wanted people that I knew ha- hadn't done much animation before, so that they were they that they went in as they were doing a regular acting job. But there's still a big puzzle because you need to take them in one at a time, so they act against it themselves basically, and then you basic then you put it together later. And but there is also a lot of freedom. You can actually improvise a lot of things uh, with them. And um, uh, with, for example, people like uh, Juliet. Uh, Juliet was the last one to come in and do her voice. And she basically read against the lines of Vincent Gallo, for example, to just... So she reacted, actually, to what he was saying. And, and, um, and uh, for example, Alec- Alexander Skarsgård, who, who's an old friend of mine, was the first that came in. And he had a very difficult job to actually having to, to create something from nothing, basically. I mean, he had no images, no nothing. I mean, so I was sort of telling him where he's standing, where he's sitting, what he's doing. But he's, he has a very vivid imagination, so it worked really well. I... So at what point did they actually see what this movie was going to look like? Very late. I mean, Alex came to Austin uh, with me uh, October and saw the whole finished film. Oh, that and fantastic fest, the, the genre fantastic festival. fest. You use technology to make this movie. We're sitting in the Apple Store. Technology isn't all bad, right? No, 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 no. I mean, I would never want to live in uh, without electricity. For example, I think I'd, I'm very a very comfortable person. I'm. Uh, uh, so it's not the film is not like a critic to to civilization. It's not about that. It's more it's more saying that you know we, we when we are when we are changing the way we look at privacy and surveillance, and when we're participating willingly. I think that, for example, a lot of young people today. I saw this. I, I saw this Facebook uh, group against. Uh, the invasion of privacy on the internet. And it's such a contradiction. Come on. You are on Facebook. I mean, and, and I think the biggest nightmare for a lot of the members in this group would be that nobody cares. You know, that nobody's interested in their interests or their friends or their, you know, social networks or whatever. You know? So for a lot of young people, and, and that's also a, 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 a thing that Today, Big Brother, for example, the TV show Big Brother, I mean, if Orwell, when he wrote 1984, would know that people would willingly participate in Big Brother, they would want to be in Big Brother, you know, and, and cry when they have to leave Big Brother, you know, it's a, 
It's a crazy, I mean, who could, who could foresee that future, you know? And, and that's what I mean with the revolution of the mind, that human beings, I mean, in a way, I think that the people in power, I mean, it must be the, a fantastic time for them because they don't need to sort of, they don't need to ask questions. They, they don't need to interrogate people. I mean, the information is already there. We give them the information willingly. We hope that somebody's interested in us. Uh, so I think that that's... Um, I don't think you could do... Like, I even think when I watch Metropia, a lot of young people, I think they wouldn't feel so uncomfortable to be... I think that if I formed a company today, for example, that would sell positive thoughts, and I would say that, okay, you can subscribe to fantastic thoughts, better thoughts than your thoughts... I think I'd be successful. I think a lot of people would subscribe to it. Maybe there would be a little movement against it. Oh, I like my thoughts, even if they're negative, you know. But, I mean, the big majority would love it. I'm sure. So are you on Facebook? Absolutely. <laughs> sort of research for this film, right? <laughs> no, I think that, I think that I'm, I'm uh, total... Um, I mean, I'm paranoid, uh, but... I'm also sort of, uh, you know, I, I, I love to stay in touch with people all over the world. And with, for example, when you've done a film, it's so nice. People, you know, add themselves on my Facebook. We communicate about the film. It's, it's really nice. It's very direct. So I, I like that. You also have a background doing graffiti art, and I can see how that might support a lot of what you're saying about these, you know, that kind of like DIY incentive that you have to, to create art seems to be supported by that kind of work as well. Yeah, yeah, this actually, I, 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 I said that in one of the screenings here that I came to New York 1987 as a graffiti tourist. And it's a concept, you know, graffiti tourism is where you go to a city and you do graffiti uh, in the... So I went down to the subway tunnels here. And it was, I mean, I was 15 years old. I, I, I don't know what my parents were thinking when they let me go to New York alone with my friends. But uh, I, I remember, I, I can, uh, what happened to this city after that? I, I, in the 80s, oh my God, it was a different city. His name is Giuliani. Ah, okay. <laughs> so, 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 yeah, I mean, it's interesting when you think about that, that kind of creativity. You know, there's a documentary out right now about the, the graffiti artist Banksy called Exit Through the Gift Shop. And one of the points that they touch on in that film is the way that this kind of work... Uh, in spite of what it comes out of, it can still be co-opted by the marketplace. And here you have this movie driven by, you know, a similar sort of incentive to work in this grassroots method. And yet, you know, it's it's here at the Tribeca Film Festival, and people pay money for it, and you need to get a distributor and all these different oh, yeah. things. So, how how do you sort of reconcile those two worlds? Well, I'm 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 not so much of an activist. I'm not so much of an activist. I'm I'm a filmmaker. And before that, I was a graffiti artist. But I'm very interested in exploring things and, and finding out things. And I think I have one, you know, I have an obligation to be truthful in what I do, whatever I do. I think that that's my main, like, to be truthful in what I say and try to find the, the, 
as, as much as I can, you know. So when I look at the film, it's important for me to feel that it's truthful. And then I, I mean, film is in part industry, part art. That's how it is. And as a filmmaker, you have to deal with that. I mean, I'm, I'm going to LA on Saturday, in, sitting in these meetings with a, you know, corporate, you know, film people. You know, it's it's not it's not very creative. It's very boring. But if you can hypnotize them to sort of invest in your film, and you can keep your integrity while you do it. Because for me, I, I didn't have much money when I grew up. And for me to actually travel was to buy a film, to, a ticket to a movie. You know, that's what, how I saw the world. I remember the first time when I came to New York when I was 15, I've, I've already been here through, through films. And that was fantastic. Uh, so I think that that's, uh, that's something that I want to... I, I want my film to be sort of a trip somewhere. So before we go to the audience for questions, tell us uh, when can people see the movie next and how do they keep up with its progress? Uh, it's out on video on demand uh, through Tribeca and there's also like a, a film, uh, there's a theater release in, uh, uh, I think it starts the 12th of uh, May here in New York and in LA. And you have an email list or anything like that? Uh, Facebook group. Right? Oh yeah, there is a Facebook group for the film for the for Metropia, and uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and uh, and I also have Facebook. So yeah. All um, right. Do we have any questions in the audience? Yeah, right there in the front row. If you raise your hand, we'll bring a mic over to you so we can capture it for the podcast. Hi, I was wondering since uh, you said that a lot of the images wasn't ready for the actors to see later on when they recorded their voices, did you mold it after their voice or how their physical appearance was? And also, could you talk about the meaning behind the title? Uh, yeah, well, I, I did change the appearance of the characters after the voice recording. F to, to get them to suit the voice. And uh, especially with the Vincent character, the nose became longer because he had a nasal. His voice comes from the nose. And, uh, and um, even um, Alex's character, because he made Stefan very nervous. So he, I, I made his eyes very sort of like, you could tell that he, had, uh, that he's not, he doesn't sleep well, this guy. Um, um, so... It's kind of a Frankenstein process to create those characters. And at some points, I almost stopped myself because you start to pass judgment on looks, you know. You become like a fashion editor, you know. You become like, yeah, I'm going to make him look more intelligent, you know, and raise his, you know, forehead a little bit. And it's, it gets really disgusting at points, actually. What, what, what's the other question? The title. Ah, the title. Yeah, the, the film, the working title was The Metro. Um, but then I remembered that it was like this totally horrible film with Eddie Murphy a couple of years ago that was called The Metro. So it was out of desperation. And it came to me, you know, I think it was, I was having a long walk in the morning and I just, you know, Metropia, you know, it just came to me. Just sounds catchy. Yeah. <laughs> Any other questions? We have another question for you right here. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm I'm doing uh, with my partner. We're doing our um, first animation feature right now, and I, I'm, I was interested to know, like, 
in your uh, development part, how much time did you spend in character development uh, as uh, before you went to the actual final rendering, the rendering stage? You know, where, where, where um, well, actually, you, t before you started to animate, basically. Yeah. You know, the, the, uh, the most important stage in an animated film is the animatic. It's where you can have the freedom to actually change the story a lot and to actually see your film. That's the big advantage before live action film, that you can actually see the film before you shoot it. And animatic is a storyboard edited to the, to the voices. I was out at uh, Blue Sky Studios and met with Chris, who did the first Ice Age film three days ago. And... Uh, and they gave me a really generous um, sort of look into their studio. And it was incredible to see, I mean, how similar we work. But at the same time, I mean, the resources, I mean, oh, my God. I mean, he, he, was, he was saying that his first film that was, um, you know, um, Ice Age 1, he said, oh, yeah, we had a very limited budget of $50 million, you know. This film have five million dollars in budget, so it's kind of a joke in that in that comparison. But what they have, the, their story department, they, you know, they have so many storyboard artists working and doing reels constantly. You know, that's where they put a lot of the emphasis of their work, because that's where you can see if the story works. Any other questions? We have one right over here on the end for you. Hi, thanks. Um, three questions, quick. Um, how long did it take you to make this film? Uh, how many animators were involved? And which software did you use? Thank you. Thanks. Uh, well, uh, it took, I mean, it was two and a half years of hardcore production. If you, But the, the project from where I started to finance it till it was ready, six years. Um, with, um, we were... Um, we're sta I mean, the crew with the designers, the riggers, the animators, everybody, the, the, also the administration, because administration is huge on, on an animated film. I had two production coordinators, line producer. You need, you need a lot of people. So it was around 100 people working. So it's like going to war, basically. You're, you're you know... If you say, oh, let's, you know, we're, uh, come, let's go over there. And then you realize, like, you know, two hours later that you're going in the wrong direction. It takes two weeks to get them to turn around, you know. And it's, so it's very, like, then, uh, what, what? Software, Adobe, Photoshop, and After Effects. So a lot of people don't realize it's a 2D film. It's not, I mean, it's almost one-dimensional when you look at it. But uh, it's not, it's not 3D. Um, it's a Sevdo 3D, we call it, because it's like there is depth, but it's created with an optical illusion, basically. But the way you used the software was very unconventional. I mean, it wasn't just the way that anyone would create a standard animation, right? I mean, you sort of broke the rules, so to speak. Yeah, we, we basically used an old plugin in After Effects. And when we were, we were collaborating with Adobe, who does After Effects, and asked them to have a chance to go into the actual plugin. But they had fired the guy who did the plugin, and they didn't, I mean, they didn't even remember his name. So it was like very difficult to deal with the sort of, uh, we had to, we, we, I mean, we, so that was, a, that was kind of a big problem. But, but we, um, my, you know, 
one thing, I believe that in 15 years from now, when you look back at films that have been made, like the last five years, if you look at the Pixar film, the DreamWorks films, the, the, even the Blue, Blue Sky films, they will all look very similar. Because the tools dictated the way they look. And uh, if you know, I mean, I worked with Maya a lot, and I know that the, basically it's the tool that makes the characters and the world look like that. And I, I like the way it looks. It's a style, but the tool have dictated it. What we, as a graffiti artist, you are struggling with a spray can that have its own, like, sort of gas in it that just, you know, you try to control that spray can. That's part of the thing. I have always tried to defeat my tools. That's, that's one of the things, you know, and I'm not saying that I managed to do it, but I think that it's important to sort of have your vision and then force the tools to your vision and not let the tools dictate the vision. Are there questions out there? Everyone all the way here in the back. What did your father think of the film? Oh, I was so nervous about that. But, but he, he really, he was so touched. And he's a very hard, uh, I mean, he was, he was the kind of father, when I did drawings when I was a kid, he changed them, you know. He fixed the perspective in them. No, he, he had this, he's Egyptian, my father. He's, he said, you know, Swedish parents, they, they, you know, they spoil their kids. So they think they're brilliant when they're not, you know. You know, every kid is an artist, is a singer, you know. That's why we have those, like, America, America Got Talent and all these TV shows, you know, and things. So he said, you know, no, this is wrong, you know, <laughs> fixing my drawings. So I knew, I knew he was going to be, like, so hard. But, but he was so touched. He said, you know, I, you know, I'm, I'm not, I have nothing to say more than that. I'm, I'm... He said he, he felt that it, it was a little bit too dark in terms of, he said, couldn't you, couldn't you give people a little bit more hope, son? This, this is what I've taught you, that the world is like this, you know? But it, 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 he, was, he, like, he likes the film, I think. Anybody else? We have one right here in the second row. Hi, two questions. Uh, the first is, can you talk about some of the films that have influenced this film that you've seen and the second question is how do you feel about a film like Avatar that sort of champions the virtual world over the real world thanks yeah. well um, I, I've been influenced by a lot of films I think that the Hitch, Hitchcock is a very Hitchcock and Polanski are the, my two favorite directors all time uh, Kubrick is in his own sort of like he's a scientist he's not a filmmaker I mean it's beyond you know we all of us others have just to you know stay back you know I don't know and uh, with uh, um, my, my favorite film of all times is Dumbo by Disney I think it's the best film ever made I, I, I cry every time I've seen it I've seen it and I've seen it 50 times uh, I think it's uh, um so it's, these films are probably the biggest inspiration. Avatar, um, I mean, the story is a little bit corny, you know? I, I mean, I, I'm, I, I can't, like, you know, really, like... But I totally sympathize with Cameron. I think that he is a fantastic filmmaker. I think he doesn't have to, he doesn't have to challenge himself. 
but he does and he does and and one beautiful thing with avatar is that when i when i saw it in stockholm uh, i i looked at the audience you know and the, the audience was very mixed like you know old young you know tough guys you know like all kinds of people and they're all like you know like children you know listening to a fairy tale and i think that that's i mean if you as a filmmaker can do that to people i mean i respect that so i i have uh, um and i also i thought he used 3d in a way that I mean, it's all all been gimmick before that, and all of a sudden, it really had a meaning. Actually, it, it felt like you're entering into a world. I I loved it. We have time for I think one or two more, right? Anybody else? Right here. We have one right here. Can you explain in a little more detail the process of the animating? Because I I did notice when you said that with the eyes, and I thought, oh, that's pretty amazing that you really I think captured the the soul in there. Can you explain? You mentioned like there's 40 levels, but how did you get the eyes to look so real? And yeah, more details on that. There is a lot of layers that Photoshop works with layers, and After Effects basically is a software where you can animate those layers and move them so that you create a sort of a movement. Uh, one of the things we did was that we basically moved the ears, the nose, the eyes, and the mouth in different speeds, and then changed the the shape of the head to create the feeling that they are actually turning, which is kind of the thing that makes it looks like you're in a 3D space. And we do that also to the world itself. So, for example, when you see the camera goes up, it's an optical illusion because it's two-dimensional, and uh, it's kind of complicated to explain. I mean, I'm thinking of releasing actually a um, uh, tutorial for it for After Effects because I honestly believe in total op- openness. I believe that if somebody somewhere can, that's how I did it. I mean, I I, I started myself in, in on the computer, you know. Then I called my dad. I mean, but I first <laughs> I first did all the tutorials that was out there. So. I, I believe I believed in uh, sharing, but it's a little bit too complicated to explain with words exactly. More than that, it's basically built with layers, and uh, I think that it's very like even though Metropia doesn't look like your regular animated film, it still follows the rules of animation, which is basically if you if you the religion of animation is about anticipation action reaction where anticipation and reaction is the important thing and the action itself is very short so if i'm going to pick up this bottle that in a pixar film my hand would go like whoa you know and then the reaction of picking it up but the actual action might only be one frame and that's part that's basically what animation is and so even if somebody's blinking you know you need to have anticipation i'm opening up more and then boom the action really quick maybe two frames and then reaction the eye opening up again do we have time for one more question one more anybody no questions all right so just to uh close us off here let's say that i want to be an animator and my father doesn't have a background in the field what are, what are the steps that you would suggest someone takes to learn how to to do the sort of stuff that you've done here 
There is a book, um, I don't remember the name, it's a big and white book about the, from, from the guy who did uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit. You can look it up on the... A- animation, animation Survival Kit. The Animation Survival Kit is the name of the book. That's one, one book you should buy. And you should do tutorials uh, in the software that you want to work in. And start simple, with a simple, simple, small idea. And, and also finish your projects. Don't start something and just then, you know, oh, no, this wasn't good. Finish the project so you see that you have actually made progress. That was one of the things I did. It was that I did a lot of short films. Like, I did over 30 films that were uh, less than two minutes long. So I saw that it was actually possible to do those films. And I think that that's very important. So that you, you, so that, so that you win. Because t- when you do the feature film, uh, it's, uh, it's, 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 like I said, it's a war. And at times, you will actually question your sanity, you know. So, uh, but, but it's possible, and I really encourage people to do it. Please join me in thanking Tarek. Thank you so much. Tarek Saleh, everybody. Thank you again. Have a wonderful evening.